Richard Morgan is the author of Altered Carbon, Broken Angels, and Market Forces. He's writing the latest series of Marvel Comics, The Black Widow. His newest novel is Woken Furies. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me here. Richard, your three Takeshi Kovacs novels all revolve pretty much around one really great technological innovation that I would call the sleeve and stack technology. Right. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit about that and explain to you to us how you came up with that technology and how it acts as kind of the core of these novels? Right. Okay. Well, sleeving basically is is it's not a new science fiction concept. Uh, I've what I've done, I suppose, is kind of uh, customize it a bit. But yeah, it's the idea that basically you can take uh, human consciousness, digitize it, and once you've digitized it, it's like any other piece of digital data that you can do things with it. You can transfer it from one person's body to another person's body. You take it out of a mind, store it, put it into another mind. Uh, You can put it into virtual environments inside a computer and run it off that. Uh, And you can also transmit it instantaneously over large distances, like a a radio wave. Um, So... Yeah, there's a huge potential here, obviously, for all sorts of nasty stuff to go on, uh, duplicating personalities, torturing people till they die, and then re- restoring them again in a new body. Uh, there, there's all sorts of new possibilities for crime and so forth. So what I did with it anyway was to take the idea and, and kind of rewire it, brush it off a little bit, and, and connect it up to uh, a noir sensibility and and uh, bring on a character, Takeshi Kovacs, uh, and a world in which this this kind of defines how we exist, that uh, your body is no longer the beginning and end of who you are. You can can survive the death of a body, whether it be in an accident or whether simply from old age. You can live, in theory, forever, uh, although most people don't because they can't afford the the re-sleeving, the cost of the new body. Uh, you can be transferred around. You can be duplicated. Uh, you can you can travel to other planets, which physically would take tens or even hundreds of years. You can do it instantaneously. Uh, so yeah, a lot of lot of potential, really. Tell us a little bit about the politics of this technology. I'm really interested in how this plays out politically in your world. Well, the the really the politics of the of the. The, the world in the Kovacs novels is not so dissimilar to politics that you'd recognize around us now in that there are the haves and the have-nots. Uh, the haves do rather well, the have-nots do rather less well. And the extent to which you benefit, benefit from the, the, the available technology is exactly indexed linked to the, the extent to which you can afford to pay for it. Uh, so, it's uh, yeah, most people would say that's not so different to the world we live in now. There... One of the things that uh, interests me is the economic setup of your world. It is very similar to ours. And I'm interested in how this technology enables the greater disparity between the haves and the have-nots to to change the concentration of wealth even farther. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think think the point is that obviously if – being rich means that you can live a lot longer. You can have multiple lifetimes. That's obviously going to be a big advantage against competitors who can't do that. Um, it's also going to make for a much a much longer-term kind of dynastic approach to power uh, in the sense that, you know, at the moment you do... I mean, there's a certain amount of dynasty, let's face it, in the U.S. today. Uh, you've got a man running the country whose father also ran the country and whose brother looks like he might be running the country in the future. Uh, God help us. Uh, <laughs> So, but that kind of thing, I mean, then you've got the Kennedy clan, you know, let's be even-handed about this. It's not just about Republicans. Uh, But given that, you know, someone, a powerful person, whether that be a 
politically powerful person or a corporate leader, given that 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 person can actually just go on living and once they've lived there 80 years or whatever, they can slip into a new sleeve uh, and live another 80 years. You you know, your your timescales for building commercial empires or carving out a political uh, uh, piece of territory is obviously massively enhanced. And the whole point being that the... If for those who can't afford to do this, for those who can only exist on the same basic uh, one lifespan uh, level, their ability to compete with with the, these people who can have multiple life, uh, lifespans and who can switch from body to body is just going to get eroded. And so, by the time the books begin, uh, this has been this technology has been around for a while, and you really have pretty much got a fossilized overclass and a fossilized underclass, um, and not an awful lot in between. Tell me. Why is the science fiction genre your choice for writing about political subjects? Well, um, <laughs> I'm I'm not sure that it that that's I think that's possibly the looking at it the wrong way around. Uh, I it's not that I choose to write about political subjects and then go looking for the genre to do it in. I, I I've always loved science fiction, and so what I'm what I'm doing is writing science fiction novels with a, a kind of American crime noir bent to them. The politics just kind of comes in along the way because inevitably if you're writing about human life and human interaction, then you are writing about politics. Uh, you know, politics inf- infuses everything we are. It's, you know, it's, it's the neighbourhood you live in, it's the schools your kids go to, it's the car you drive, it's uh, the taxes you pay, it's the travel you can or cannot uh, do, whether you can have a passport or not. Uh, all of those things are basically put down to politics. As politics governs our life, uh, there's a rather rather naive and strange uh, mindset that exists certainly here in the U.S. Um, less so in the U.K., but you do find people with, with with it there. That you know, politics is some kind of big external factor that's got nothing to do with real life, and this is a very dangerous way of looking at things because it, it basically is it's the, the you know ostrich thing of sticking your head in the sand, pretend that that nothing's there. But it's also, I think, it's blatantly obvious that that's not the case. Uh, you, you, you know, politics is all about who we are and what we do. We, we are political animals. Human beings are social animals and therefore political animals. And uh, the structure of how we live is, is politics that, you know, they're one and the same thing. One of the things that science fiction is good for is externalizing interior emotions and ideas to bringing them out. And it got its start with monsters where monsters would personify our inner emotions, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right. for example. Then we moved on to our fears of government with 1984, mm-hmm. where it was really written in 1948. I believe that's what he wanted to actually title the novel. Yeah, they wouldn't let him. Yeah. They wouldn't let him. <laughs> so I, what has happened recently that have become externalized are our fears of corporate domination. Yeah, I think that's the case. Although Again, to be honest, it's not a recent call for science fiction. I mean, right the way back to Alfred Bester, who's writing in the late 50s, you, you've already got a perception of, of a kind of corporate future and the dangers of that that, uh, that is going to involve. William Gibson and the cyberpunk crew really take the matter on um, full on. You know, they're, 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 the cyberpunk fiction is full of a future in which the corporations have pretty much superseded government as a, as a, uh, a, a mode of management and... Uh, 
Gibson's very fond of talking about uh, quaint little places, corners of the globe, where they still have government. You know, the intimation being that back in the heart of things, back in in the sprawl on on the east coast of uh, United States and elsewhere in the in the developed world, that 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 the whole concept of a national government has has become antiquated. So, yeah, that's been going on for a while. Uh, I don't, and I think what's happening now is we're just actually starting to perceive the reality of it. That that you know, the, the corporate and commercial world uh, now globalized is beginning to supersede national government and, and at the level of small countries it already has superseded it. I, and we're beginning to see it now hitting even the big countries even the powerful nations uh, in, you know including the US and I mean with a number of corporate scandals that have been in the last couple of years what you're clearly seeing there is the extent to which we no longer have a political handle on what these very large uh, independent bodies are doing with you know with with our our life and health and uh, it's it's definitely on its way you know in a sense that all of the predictions and the kind of doomsaying that that, that you had right through the from you know right from Bester right the way up to the cyberpunk and uh, beyond that that era as well what's happening now is this is no longer science fiction this is real it's here and now uh, and in fact I wrote a book about that <laughs> That was market forces. That right? was market forces. Yeah, yeah. Uh, market forces is set fifty years in the future, but I increasingly think that I was being, um, you know, overly conservative there because uh, practically every other day I pick up the paper and I read something in in the headlines that that, that jumps right out of the book that I've written. You know, that uh, a world in which yeah, corporations take major decisions about what's going to happen in a country on the other side of the world, and and that's what happens. You know, tell us a little bit in your new novel, Woken Furies. You have this ossified society, but you also have the potential for revolution. Yeah, well, I mean, that's excuse me, uh, that's a that's a, a, a kind of a human salient, I think. That you you whatever situation whatever situation you have, if you've got any kind of overculture and any kind of uh, system of governance that that is in the least bit oppressive, and, and you know, in the end, all systems of governance end up being oppressive. You're inevitably going to have a, a kick against that, you know. It's it. I think it's down to basic male programming. You know, you've got the, the you've got the alpha males who run things. There's a whole bunch of other alpha males who don't get the chance to run things, and inevitably they are going to kick up a fuss. There's going to be some kind of of response, a counterforce, if you like. And yeah, so in in Woken Furies, although you've got yeah, as you say, this this kind of ossified uh, political structure uh, that things are locked in place and there's not a lot you seem to be able to do about it you've also got some very dangerous revolutionary types radicals uh, and they also have harnessed this this technology of of living for more than one lifetime you've got a situation in which a political philosophy has evolved called quellism which basically says well you know you, you you fight, and if if you're not successful, you just go away and you live maybe an entire lifetime without fighting again. You bring up children, you get on with your life, you know. You can come back 60, 70 years down the line in a new body. You can come back and try again. So it kind of takes the old Trotsky uh, idea of the permanent revolution, and it really gives it a, a boost. Uh, so, yeah, you know, there's always the possibility of change. Uh, the any system has within it the, the 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 seeds of of its own destruction, and one of the things I hate about the way that the the, the sort of the right wing uh, in power at the moment on both sides of the Atlantic, really, although nominally our government is not, uh, is that they they don't seem to have seen that you know the more you squeeze, uh, the more someone's going to push back, and and it'll it will always end in tears, you know, uh, so. 
revolutions and 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 the violence that they entail and i mean by in no way saying that a revolution is necessarily a great thing but it it's a kind of inevitable response to uh to oppression top down oppression and you 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 sometimes wonder why the people who are up at, at the top can't see this that, that you know we if we lean hard on people like this sooner or later something's got to give and when it does give yeah, all hell breaks loose tell us a little bit about the uh, first family's concept that you have in your novel and how that parallels what we have right now. Right. Well, yeah, going back to the Bushes and the Kennedys and, <laughs> and so on, uh, I, what I, well, the, the idea is that the, 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 uh, the novel, Woken Furies, is set on a colonized planet that's a couple of hundred light years from Earth. And this world was settled several hundred years back by uh, a Japanese keiretsu, uh, who provided the software and the uh, hardware and the, the the finance to do this? They went looking for their workforce, uh, the people to actually staff the colony. Uh, they they went looking Eastern Europe. So you end up with a culture that's a kind of a mix of Japanese and and Eastern European. Initially, the idea was that the Japanese would tend to be the overclass culture, and the, the East European would be the, the kind of the labour force, the underclass. But over time, there's been a certain amount of mingling. Uh, certainly, by the time. My character Kovach comes along. He's called Takeshi Kovach, he's, so he's got a little bit of, of both in, in mixed in there. The idea is that the the colony was set up by a group of, of very powerful people who they're called the first families because they really are the first ones who are decanted when the, when the colony ships arrive. You, you you're trying to save space, basically. You know, any any anything that you send through space is expensive because of propulsion costs basically you know the more mass you have the harder it is to push the spaceship and therefore the more expensive so the idea is that you would send most of your your people as embryos frozen embryos and then you'd have like uh, a system for for being able to dump these embryos into uh, artificial wombs and bring them to bring them up to um to full uh, adulthood over a relatively fast period of time, there'd also be some people who are just frozen fully adult because you'd need, you're going to need your technicians and uh, and your engineers to get in there and start doing things from day one. Really, these people who who arrive first, one way or another, these are the first families. And of course, what they do, as well as actually setting up the colony and getting things rolling, is they basically establish themselves well at the top of the pile. You you could see an analogy with the kind of I don't know the ranching families that uh, of the Western United States in the kind of in the late eighteen hundreds. You got these guys going out and scratching a living for themselves out of the land, building these these huge ranches, and then essentially becoming the 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 kind of the local nobility. Uh, that's not often portrayed in cowboy movies, but it, it's a very—it's quite a close parallel with what was going on, you know, further south with the, the Russian conquistadores, where these these kind of glory roader younger sons would come along, and they'd carve themselves out a little little kingdom uh, and and rule it. Uh, and to a very great extent, that's what also was going on in 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 the north in the northern Americas, uh, with with these these kind of ranch kings, the cattle kings, and so forth. So you, you, that's the there's a kind of analogy with that that these guys arrive, the whole planet's up for grabs. Most people haven't yet been decanted from the uh, from the ships, so they get in, they they set things up, and they take over. And this is why they're known as the first families because they're the first ones off the boat, as it were. And, uh, yeah, they, once they're in control, they sure as hell aren't going to be giving up any of their control if they can avoid it. So you end up with a repressive system. In this case, you, you end up with a violent revolution against it very shortly after, you know, only a few years into the, the colony effort. And they reach a kind of equilibrium where 
the hardline revolutionaries lose out, but the moderates come in and kind of broker a deal with the ruling class, and they get they get some concessions, and you end up with a, a more humane, relatively livable society. Then the idea is that over time, the uh, the ruling classes then start to claw that back. I mean, you can see that in, in that an analogy with with the New Deal and what's happened since the since the Reagan administration, if you like, where. You know, the whole Roosevelt era, the idea that, that someone coming in and clearing up and saying, this is not right, we're not going to have society run under these lines, bringing in legislation, bringing in uh, protective laws. And, yeah, and then as we've seen over the last sort of 25 years, basically the, the, the Republican right clawing back, unpicking that legislation, working really hard to try and basically undo all the work that was done during the New Deal. And and this is analogous. It's not it's not supposed to be a close analogy. It's not supposed to be a parallel. But it, you can see parallels. You can see an allegorical significance, if you like. So by the time Woken Furies kicks off, a lot of the benefits that the initial revolution gained have been clawed back, and things look like they're going down the tubes again. So it's a time, it's ripe for a second revolution. Tell me a little bit about the seaside setting in this novel. It, the planet is m- mostly water. Yeah. And you mentioned Chem Nunn's Tapping the Source yeah, a- yeah. as an as a uh, inspiration for some of your surf lore, but also you seem to have taken some of his attitude. And this novel has a very peculiar feeling of what I called violence recollected in tranquility. <laughs> That's great. Actually, I wish I'd thought of that myself. Yeah, I um, the the Chem Nun book, uh, Tapping the Source. It's, it's a great novel. It really is. Um, it's one of those ones where you open it on page one and you suddenly, you realize how good this guy is. From the get-go, I mean, it starts doesn't start anywhere near the sea. It's in the middle of the desert that the actual um, the, the novel kicks off. But you're reading it, and you can actually smell engine oil and feel the heat on the back of your neck. And that's just from three lines. I mean, superb writing. Anyway, yeah, um, I went. I, I read the Chem Nun book because basically I needed to do a little bit of research into surfing. The idea was that yeah, this is a planet that's largely water. It's also a planet that has less gravity than Earth uh, and three moons which obviously is going to make for some interesting tidal behavior. So you're going to have a very wild and peculiar sea, uh, and obviously that's got to be great for you know guys who like standing on a piece of wood and risking their lives in the middle of the ocean. Uh, so you'd have I, I had the vision that you'd have these kind of extreme surfers, and obviously the fact that you if you're killed you can actually get another body uh, is going to add to the, the even, you know, my feeling is most surfers are, are pretty way halfway to crazy anyway. Uh, Anyone who's seen Billabong Odyssey will be able to uh, vouch for that. I mean, so the, see the size of these waves these guys get up on. But imagine if they knew that even if they're killed in in in, um, in the wipeout, then they can get another body from somewhere, and you're going to see some real crazy shit. So, um, yeah, I, I knew there'd be some surfers, and that, that these surfers would be kind of integral to the plot. So that, that's why I went away and read Chem Nun. I'd, I'd had it recommended to me by a number of people as the surf, surf noir novel. But yeah, Harlan's world, yeah, it's a drowned world. It used to look a bit like Earth, uh, but a long time ago the sea levels rose, the polar ice caps melted, and you're left with not much land, basically. And what land you're left with is largely uh, chains of archipelagos, that are essentially drowned mountain ranges. So there's not much land, it's hard to use, uh, it's at a premium, and uh, and therefore small small population and all a bit tense about you know getting, getting their hands on uh, real estate. And... There are also going to be beaches everywhere. You know? uh, you've got, if you've got a lot of sea, uh, you're going to have a lot of beaches. And so the idea was that there would be this, this one particular beach and an area that, that uh, geological circumstances have conspired to create this fantastic thousand-mile-long beach with some of, some of the, the best surfing anywhere in, in, in the known universe. 
Uh, and that living on this beach, you've got these guys who basically have spent not only their whole lives, but several lifetimes surfing uh, because they surf, surf until the body they've got basically won't do it anymore and, and then say hopefully they've worked some kind of scam or they've saved up or they've done something and they can get a new body. And so there's a kind of pulse of life along this beach that, you know, um, surf legends who've lived for hundreds of years and, uh, and they're basically a whole existence tied to this, this kind of extreme sport surfing. Uh, that was what I wanted. I already got a, had a vague vision of it, and uh, yes, yeah, so for that, you know, uh, none was an ideal source to, to go and look for. He, he's very good on the the kind of the seedy, the seedy and the splendor that go side by side. So uh, he, yeah, as you say, there is a certain amount of violence in in uh, tapping the source, but yeah, it's it's kind of balanced against uh, this kind of sense of, of, of beauty with, of, uh, you know, the life by the ocean and what it can mean. And that, I really wanted that. I, that, I, I liked the sense of that. Uh, Kovach is a man with a very violent past and I was looking for, uh, some way to, to counterpoint that, to play off that. So yeah, he gets to do a lot, spend a lot of time sitting on beaches, looking at the ocean, but whilst thinking about all the violent things he's done and violent things that he's still got to do as well. Religious extremism. Gets, oh yes, that. gets a treatment in this in this novel. Tell us a little bit about what your real world inspirations were, if any, and what how you uh, use science fiction to transmute it into something even more scary. Yeah, well, I I've, I I don't. It's no secret. I think I have very little time for religion of any stripe. You know, uh, my feeling is religion is is it's a little bit like S and M. You know, I can't really see why anyone would want to do it. But if they want to do it in the privacy of their own home, you know, with consenting between consenting adults, hey, that's cool with me by all means. But but you know, just don't try and get me to do it. Um, and unfortunately, most of the the most I say most because there are some exceptions. Most um, large religious blocks are the ex- exact opposite of that. They are very concerned to make sure that you also have to do the S and M. You know that you you got to become a part of it. And I have really no patience with this at all. So yeah. Woke and Furious was a chance for me to kind of set up a, an analog religion which had a lot of similarities with Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Islam, uh, and the whole kind of patriarchal stuff that goes with that. Because what is what you see at base with most religions, uh, in fact, no, I, I, well, Sikhism is the only one I'm not sure about because it, uh, it appears to be fairly uh, egalitarian when it comes to the roles of the sexes, although how that plays out in practice is another is another matter. But I mean, certainly if you take Islam, if you take Christianity, if you take Judaism, what you find is that at the, at the base of this is is an, a deep and intense uh, misogyny, a, um, a kind of a suppression of women, a fear of women, and and very often a hatred of women. And yeah, I was looking for some way to kind of kick against that, so I created this this hybrid religion which had all of those characteristics. And then I, I kind of unleashed my uh, central character to you know, go out and slaughter large numbers of these guys, um, so which made me feel you know, a little bit better. Identity is an interesting concept in your world. It, it's fluid and not static. Mm-hmm. It's dynamic and not controlled. And it gets to the very heart of the matter of does it matter who you are or does it matter what you do? Yeah, well, identities are increasingly, I think, with time is is a very slippery concept. Uh, you and we are now starting to to see evolved bodies of thought that that are basically telling us that we don't really exist. That our entire what we think of as ourselves is actually like a, a 
a metaphor almost, a construct uh, that you know we 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 think of, of ourselves as a as a person and a personality, but actually that's just something that our brain does to trick us into into dealing with the world in a certain way. So, yeah, how do you define who you are? Everybody likes to think they know who they are, but that depends on circumstances. And you you know you're certainly not the person you were twenty years ago. You may not be the person you were a couple of years ago. If you live a comfortable middle-class life, for example, and then you were suddenly found yourself thrust into a situation of, of, um, of danger and want uh, and you were in harm's way, you would then again find that you might not be the kind of the person that you thought you were. Uh, and vice versa, you know, people who've, who've struggled all their lives and had very, very tough circumstances then through whatever circumstance that sort of become wealthy, successful and, and have a different life. Again, they may well find out that they're not the person that they thought they were. Uh, it's quite an interesting uh, – I've been reading quite a lot on psychology recently. And uh, what I've also come across is this uh, – this, this uh, not really a theory, this, this kind of body of thought which is saying that if you play tricks with someone's mind by kind of uh, showing the right and left hemispheres different things, and then ask and getting and seeing that you know they then behave in different ways, then asking them to justify the behaviour, you find that the, the mind comes up very quickly with a rationale to sort of explain why it's behaved in a way that that, that doesn't make sense. And these rationales are uh, you know transparently obviously not uh, not effective. They don't they don't really justify it. But it's the mind is very very uh, has a knack for doing this really fast. They've done experiments with people who've had their right and left hemispheres separated. But rather alarmingly, what these guys are saying is that it's not only that, it's that all human beings appear to run a kind of rationale program, a subroutine, where you're constantly making up the world to, to you know, justify your actions and your behavior. Uh, and that in, you know, an awful lot of what we think of as free will is actually retrospective, that we do stuff and then we decide afterwards why we did it. Uh, that doesn't come as any huge surprise to me because I've thought for Many years now that you know most of most, when you hear people say why they did something, most of that ver- turns out to be rationalisation, and always makes me laugh in in you know movies, uh, movie scripts and things when they're sort of you know, you know what's the motivation for this character? Yeah, you know it's very rare I do something and I can say right well I did this because of X. You know I mean you act out of a matrix of motivations, rationales, um, influences, and so forth. It's very often hard to t- to say why you did something. So. Yeah, personality personality ends up being extremely fluid, uh, and that's very scary. It's in an existential sense, you know, you suddenly got this sense of vertigo of you don't really know where you're standing anymore. And yeah, in Kovacs's world, this is added to by the fact that if you're being dumped in and out of different bodies, then that's not you know, it's not really conducive to a stable state of mind either. <laughs> um, and you have to develop a kind of Zen, I suppose. To, approach to this of you know this is here this is now and i will deal with this as we as it stands rather than having a very very solid structured view of yourself as a as an entity you know that has lived x number of years um and yeah i mean it's it's scary but it's also very exciting i think because it, it offers us all sorts of freedoms that we perhaps didn't have before the idea to the ability to say well you know i i don't have to be this person you know i may have been this person a while ago i don't have to be this person anymore um and uh, I, I always think possibility potentiality is an exciting thing i find it fascinating so you know the fluidity of, of personality is is something i'm very interested in yeah you use science fiction quite well to bring out Thank self-conflict you. right uh, tell us a little bit about how you do this in this novel 
Right. Well, I the the, the story is told. Uh, to be honest, I I think it's less the science fiction than the the American noir uh, influences that, that that do this. The novels, the Kovacs novels, are told in the first person. They're told from Kovacs's point of view, and very much in the way that a um, you know the detective, whether it be Philip Marlowe or Rick Deckard or or any other detective in the noir genre, very much as as the story is narrated. Uh, with with an interior monologue, the, the same goes for Kovach. Now, obviously, if yeah, if you're kind of a little bit psychotic and not really stable or balanced, and you you're not really sure what you're doing or why, or or you know, we have this fluidity of personality, then what you end up with is you do have an interior monologue, but it's fractured, and it's it's uh, so Kovach's voice is very often more than one voice squabbling. You know, he's squabbling with himself a lot of the time. He's kind kind of arguing, disagreeing, toing and froing about what he should and shouldn't do and what, what he has and hasn't done. Um, and, yeah, I, it's a very valuable tool. I find it's, it's a useful way of, of kind of getting to the heart of the conflicts that, that are in this man, you know, that how he lives with who he is, how he tries to, to rationalise what he's done or, or at least to, to, to kind of live in a way that fits in with, with what he's done. Um, yeah, well, and, and so first-person narrative, it, it, it's a marvellous tool for that. Well, actually, I was thinking of the fact that He's his personality is Napstered essentially. Oh, <laughs> right, corporate okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, that. Uh, yeah, you you have the option, obviously, as I, I said earlier, uh, that the, this technology gives you the possibility of duplicating a personality and, and essentially having two versions of the same person. This is highly illegal. Uh, obviously, you know, identity is a very serious uh, matter for any human being, and therefore within any human society, and. The the idea of a duplicate personality is anathema to all of these people, pretty much as it would be to any of us. I think we'd be. It's interesting. There are a lot of kind of ghost and horror stories about doppelgangers, and and they always there's a real sense of horror about the idea that you know you could have your identity stolen. Uh, there, there's uh, the whole idea also, I think, of stealing souls, which is very common in a lot of cultures. I'm sure that comes down to identity as well. You know, there's primitive cultures where they believe that if someone takes your photo, they've stolen your soul. What that's really about is the idea of, of taking something from you that is intrinsically you. So, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of a depth of revulsion at the idea of, of duplicating a personality. It doesn't happen very often. When it does happen, it's usually eliminated as quickly as possible. But it does give you some rather interesting scenarios where you may find yourself literally arguing with yourself in the sense that you will have another self there sitting in front of you uh, whose point of view may not be yours uh, and, and, and dealing with that, uh, sometimes amicably, sometimes somewhat less amicably. Your novels feature quite a bit of torture. Do that? More than... <laughs> well... Hmm. <laughs> there, there, there's an element of that, yeah, but I don't know about quite a bit. Well, there's uh, some virtual torture in, yeah. in Altered Carbon, and um, Takeshi is collecting the stacks of the priests. In Woken Furies. In Woken yeah. Furies. Okay, fair enough, yeah. yeah so, you, you got me back to rights. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fair cop. So I'm wondering what makes you interested in this and why you write about it? Well, there's always the the possibility that it's just sort of simple monkey curiosity, uh, sort of horrible trait uh, that we we carry with us you know, all through our evolution. I, torture horrifies me; it really does much, much more than death. Because I think, I think anybody could kill somebody. I think it, it doesn't take much imagination to put yourself in a situation where you might kill somebody, uh, either in sort of hot blood in the, the heat of the moment, or out of revenge, fury, or something like that. So. 
I think murder, for all that it's a horrible crime, is is a, is a very human crime and very comprehensible. It's very understandable. And I don't think it's. I think anyone who says that they're you know they can't comprehend it, I think, is lying to themselves. I think it's it's intrinsically very human. Torture to me seems like a much much harder and more unpleasant step to take, because it's one thing to kill somebody. Uh, it's another thing to act to just to to make someone suffer artificially and uh, to switch off your empathy for that, if you like. Um, because, I mean, and I'm thinking here, if you look at the kind of the torture that went on during the, uh, the you know, uh, the Pinochet era in Chile or in Argentina under, under the Galtieri regime or in, in any number of other countries where it's, where it's rife. And these people were kept in cells and tortured, you know, not just a few for a few days before they were murdered. Some of these people were kept and tortured for months and months at a time. And you, you, I, I, I really cannot reach out and, and make the human link with a man or a woman, although I think largely these torturers tended to be men, who can go into a cell day in, day out like a job and inflict extreme suffering on another human being. Uh, I, I can't make that bridge. Uh, and again, very you know, most cases this this was done in a very clinical fashion. It was done to people who it wasn't like these people had had sort of done something to the torturers. It wasn't like the torturers were looking for revenge because again, there there's a kind of bridge you can sort of see it. You know, if you if you have a child and you know, that child's murdered, what you would do to the person who did that? Yeah, quite possibly you come up with a list of horrific tortures that you you might feel that you could inflict. Whether you could or not would depend on, I think, on, you know, you, you would never know until you're in that situation. But to, to take someone who, you know, whose, whose big crime might is probably that they just disagree with you politically um, and, and to day in, day out go and torture this person and see them, see them beaten, see them electrocuted, see them raped, uh, that to me is, is it's a step I can't take. I'm unable to put myself into the position of that, of, of that, uh, that man. And, and for me, therefore, it's inhuman. And because of that, I do. I try to kind of portray it when it when it crops up in the novels as an ultimate horror. And obviously, the fact that you can bring people back after death in the, in this world gives you know, makes the, the 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 torture even worse because there's no escape even in death. Um, so I yeah, I do try and make it an ultimate horror, the the, the sort of the worst possible thing that can happen. Uh, but really, I suppose some in in part this is just it's a kind of a search to understand how could anyone do that? Because I say I don't have a problem making the bridge to murder. I uh, can imagine myself killing somebody, and I think most, most human beings can. And I can just about imagine the kind of the torture that, as I said, would derive from some kind of revenge kick, you know. From, but the ability to just torture people uh, who you don't know anything about, you know, who, you, who are strangers to you, uh, or in some case, even more terrifying cases you find, uh, who were kind of known to you before, who were, I mean, you know, in the case of, say, the, the Holocaust in Germany, where, you know, these, these very often neighbours who were, taken and tortured and, and uh, treated in this way I, it's deeply disturbing I find it very unpleasant um, and uh, and yet for that reason I guess I'm trying to get to the bottom of, of what you know what that's about you know where that comes from um, so it's the yeah I, I guess it's kind of like the road crash mentality isn't it you're kind of staring at it um, I've tried to examine it you know in, in some depth in the in the Kovach books uh, 
I think my view on it is fairly clear in all cases. Uh, the, the, you know, I, I view it with abhorrence. The other thing that's worth pointing out is pretty much all of the torture that's in my books I haven't had to make up. I mean, I've read this in actual Amnesty International reports or you know, newspaper reporting from Iran, from South and Central America, uh, from China, uh, places where this kind of thing is carried out on a regular basis. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just an attempt on my part to try and get to grips with it, to, to, to try and understand it, uh, which I still don't, really. I'd like to talk to you about an aspect of science fiction that your novels bring up, but you manage to sidestep somewhat. And that, <laughs> this is, this is uh, uh, the idea of the singularity, um, the idea that when we evolve a machine interface with the human brain, that the machines will evolve, uh, rapidly evolve uh, an intelligence that we won't be able to comprehend right. and themselves become gods. Right, okay. And this um, idea has become somewhat dangerous in science fiction in that it in, – in itself, it acts like a black hole and everybody has to deal <laughs> with it. I'm wondering how and why you've managed to sidestep it and, and what your thoughts are on the idea itself. Well, uh, I yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's a fascinating uh, idea, and a lot and a number of science fiction writers have dealt with it quite eloquently. I think. I mean, the, the one that springs to mind most immediately is Ian MacDonald's *River of Gods*, which uh, a very fine novel, uh, which deals with exactly this: the concept of artificial intelligence and what it does, you know, as it develops and where it goes ultimately. Uh, and it's a fascinating novel. The, the, the way he binds this up with all sorts of other aspects of of human culture and, and also spirituality in a sense, religion. Ken McLeod also deals with it somewhat uh, in his uh, Sky Road uh, series of books. Uh, so it, it's, it's, I guess it's been taken care of. I don't need to worry about it. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a get-out answer. I, I personally, I'm a bit like Asimov in this. In the, I mean, I remember Asimov when he wrote his robot stories pretty much kind of sat down and said, well, look, you know, you've got all this science fiction in which robots run amok and do horrible things. But, you know, human beings build machines as tools, and you don't build a machine uh, without some kind of safety feature in it. You don't tend to, you know, I mean, if you if you build a chainsaw, you put a guard on the chainsaw, and you have, like, a cutout system so that you, it's very hard to saw your own feet off by accident, you know. Most machinery is programmed against human stupidity, um, increasingly so as we get better at understanding, you know, sort of how... Um, how that works, how humans and machines interface. So I, I, I suppose I think that in the same way, you know, this business of the sort of the super-evolving AIs, I got a feeling that somehow human beings are going to find a way to put a lock on that, you know, and um, make sure that, that that it doesn't get out of hand. Gibson always in, envisaged that there would be some kind of regulatory body that would, would make sure that uh, artificial intelligences had kind of like an electronic shotgun wired to their forehead at all times and that in the event that they did anything even remotely uh, or odd or, or, or suspicious, then they just pull the trigger and the EMP goes off and that's it, no more AI. Uh, I don't know whether it would need to be something that extreme, but I, I think that fundamentally, you know, if we do develop real AI, then there will be checks and balances in place. I also think that if we develop real AI, it's, I, I think it's going to be different enough from human patterns of thought that it's possibly not even going to be a problem because the AI is not really going to be on the same page as us. Uh, they're, they're, again, there's this, this kind of idea of, you know, well, all life has the same basic desire to keep on existing and to and to replicate and so forth. There's no reason why that should be the case with machine intelligence. You know, I mean, th there are certain evolutionary forces that drive uh, 
organic life, and that's why you have very strong life force. But I mean, if you build something like a, an artificial intelligence, and if those machines then build other machines, there's no evolutionary drive in there unless you choose to set it to work. And so there's no reason why why those machines would would come out thinking in any way like. Uh, an organic life form and have this kind of approach to things. There's nothing to say they wouldn't. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not drawing a line under it, but I'm just saying I've not felt the need to address that except in the sort of glancing fashion. There's an artificial intelligence that runs the hotel in altered carbon. But it's kind of just getting on and existing and it's not really fussed about the humans around it and it's certainly not looking to kind of fill the universe with clones of itself and wipe out humanity in the process. I think in that sense that that is almost a retrograde step right back to the kind of metropolis view of of robots, this sort of, ah, the monsters are coming. Yeah, maybe they are, but I don't think so. I mean, I think um, there's a whole different series of possibilities as to how AI would work work out, and the the Ken McLeod nightmare scenario, where they basically want to take over and replicate everything and fill up the entire universe and so forth, that's just one scenario, and and he, he... explores it and he unpacks it very in, in a very interesting fashion. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the right one. I'm not convinced that Ian Banks's sort of beneficent, um, godlike uh, artificial minds is also the right one. Who knows? But I've not felt the need to address it, let's say. I, I've kind of assumed that, you know, in this future world, yeah, they'll have artificial intelligence, but it'll have checks, safeguards, um, safety features, and, and it won't really be a problem that can't be dealt with. I'd like to talk to you about technology and entertainment you know the novels are you read them it takes time to read so when you buy mm-hmm. a novel and as a as a product you're buying like maybe you know a 48 hours 60 hours of entertainment for yourself and there's just mm. no way to to get around that to 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 change that whereas when you buy a movie um you're buying two hours of entertainment for yeah. yourself so while there's been a lot of talk about the death of the novel, it seems to me that maybe that as digital duplication technology unfolds and becomes more unstoppable, mm-hmm. that um, entertainment will become based – will become judged not so much on the intensity but more on the, the longevity, the amount of time you get out of it. I, I'm wondering if you want, would want to talk about that, about this duplication process and what you think the future of reading and entertainment novels are. Well, yeah, I, um, you, you may have something there because it's a good point. I mean it's interesting when you read reviews of, say, video games. They usually give you a kind of, you know, oh, it's a good 10 hours of entertainment, you know, or you get a good 25 hours out of this game. I... I find it an odd thing because I've never thought of art of any sort as a as a kind of a quantifiable thing, you know. Because how would you quantify, I don't know, a sculpture? You know, how many hours do you get out of that? Well, I don't know. You go and look at it maybe, you know, every day because it's on your way to work. So you're, you're getting like two or three minutes a day. Multiply that up. Who knows? Also, with any kind of entertainment, uh, although obviously there's more immediacy to something like video games or, or movies, there is also a kind of... You know, a hangover effect, and uh, (laughs) hangovers like mine, Uh, in that, yeah, after you've played your game, watched your movie, read your book, whatever it is, who knows how much time you're going to devote to it afterwards. Uh, I mean, one of the things about the the books that I've read that have really made an impression on me, and, and, you know, with one or two games that I've played that have made a big impression on me as well, and certainly some movies, is you end up thinking about them afterwards quite extensively and you may end up talking to other people about them afterwards. I mean if I were to add up the number of hours of conversation I've had out of Blade Runner you know outside its 
two-hour uh, deployment, or hour and 45 minutes, whatever the, whatever the movie is. Well, then again, how do you factor that in? So you'd have to work out some kind of quite complicated formula, wouldn't you? Because you'd need the initial amount of time needed to consume the piece of art. Then you've got to factor in, in some way, uh, how much post-consumption reflection goes into that and the extent to which you use it as an engagement with other human beings and of course you couldn't count those hours as the same as the actual consumption hours so you'd have to they'd need to be some kind of a you know uh, you'd have to put in an, I don't know an integral or something to factor that at a different level and it, it gets really complicated after that <laughs> um, I think there, I think it's it's no accident that this is this is something that seems to be evolving in video games because yeah video games are mostly extremely superficial uh, they really are you know you unplug your brain, you sit down with your with your console and you, you lose yourself in it for a few hours um, and then you stop, you if you can uh, and uh, you plug your brain back in and you go away and do something else uh, so yeah, superficial entertainment can maybe be quantified in that way, but I think anything that's got any quality to it, any calibre to it is far more complex than that. And, yeah, the good thing here is about, yeah, I don't think we're anywhere near the death of a no the novel because I do think that the novel, or, yeah, I mean books, but specifically the novel, I think, is it's almost, it's like, you know, it's like a bicycle or, or a handgun. Those things, those forms have kind of evolved to the, the, the extent where they're pretty much perfect. I mean, there's not much you can do to a bicycle to make it a better bicycle. You can build it out of lighter materials, um, you know, you can grease the chain with, with, with the, the latest in carbon uh, lubrication technology. You can, there are also little modifications, but fundamentally it's still a bike. You know, everyone knows what a bike looks like. Uh, you, you, look, you look at one on the street, you know what it is, you know what it does. And it, it really is an ultimate form. You can't, there's no real way to improve on that design. It's the same with a handgun. Uh, there are a lot of little technical modifications to make handguns work better. But in the end, it's pretty much an ultimate form. You know, they, we have found a way to, to, to you know, create this, this tool, this weapon. That's it. You know? And a handgun in 500 years' time is going to look a lot like a handgun now. Um, same with a book. You know, it's such a phenomenal idea. It's this little thing with a hinge on it. Um, it's, it doesn't require batteries. Uh, it's as long as there's a decent amount of light. Anybody and you've had the previous software implanted at school. Uh, anybody can use it. It's completely silent, uh, so you can have eight or ten people using this technology in the in a room at the same time uh, um, without interfering with each other, which you certainly can't with a video game. Um, yeah, and and it's one, of, and you can carry it around with you. It's quite lightweight. It's pretty cheap. You can always replace it if if it gets damaged, uh, and it it in, interfaces with software that's already in your brain through evolution. Uh, it, it's you know the capacity to kind of make images from the words. So I, again, I think it's pretty much an ultimate form. And although we'll find ways to download it onto e-paper, and we'll we'll keep it on our Palm Pilots, and and there'll be all these other possibilities, ultimately a book as a the you know the act of you know a tool for reading uh, and for being entertained through the written word. There's not a lot more development that can be done with that. It's an ultimate form, I think. Uh, and, and yes, as you say, because very often a book will give you far far more in terms of how much time it takes to consume it and what you get out of it than, than more superficial entertainments. I think its future is assured. I'd like to talk to you about the future of science fiction novels, in particular right. as advertising for video games. We're seeing, a, <laughs> we're seeing a lot more science fiction novels written based on video games that I'm trying to understand when I see these novels why they're being written and how 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 do you think this is going to affect the genre itself? Well, I yeah, um, I'm going. 
I don't want to come across as, as all snobbish, but to be honest with you, I mean, I, I just heard the movie for Doom came out. And, you know, what do you know? It's a piece of shit. Um, well, you know, yeah, I, mean, I like Doom. Doom 3, the, um, the, the game, uh, I, I've got it on an Xbox platform. It's a fine game. It really is. I mean, it's 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 again. It's it's a fantastic example of its of its form. It's terrifying. It's fast moving. You you get sweats. You get adrenaline. It, it it's a great game. It really don't you know? I wouldn't knock it. I think it's 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 wonderful. It doesn't really transfer very well into a into a movie because you know fundamentally there's no plot. There's no characterization. It's just these these scary monsters jumping out at you. And it always seemed to me it was a pretty stupid thing to do to make a movie of it. But, you know, there are a bunch of stupid people out there who've gone to see it and apparently really liked it. It's only people who are employing any kind of critical faculty who have come back saying, no, it's a piece of shit. Um, books based on video games, it seems to me, are even more of a loser because, you know, what's the point? Unless you can, there is something in the video game, some element within it, which, which can actually be uh, unfolded and unpacked into something more than it actually is. Now, you, you could, in theory, have done that. With, I don't think, Doom's not a good one to choose for that because it is so straightforward and simple, and then that's its genius in a way. But, I mean, I, I recently played a game called The Suffering. Uh, it's from Midway Games, again, it's, uh, an Xbox game that I played. And that game really is like a novel in the sense that it does have subtle characterization, it has a, a slanted view of good and evil, there's no real clarity about what's good and bad, uh, it has very powerful symbology, uh, and, and it's been lovingly put together uh, in, in such a way as it does all sorts of interesting things to you, to your mind, plays with your mind, uh, as well as being a, real, a really great ride, as well as being scared, terrifying and sort of makes you jump and, and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, in that sense, there's the potential to, to, to kind of unpack... So if people want to write books based on video games, well, fine, let them go ahead and do that. But I do have the feeling that in much the same way as you get there are a lot of Star Wars spin-off novels as well. I don't want to knock them, but I, I kind of suspect that there's not a lot in those books. Uh, and I think, yeah, you, we, it, it's, it's cross-marketing, basically, isn't it? You've got a product in one medium that sells. So you then try and bring it up in the other media and hope that, that you can then do something with it there. So <clears throat> maybe we will have Doom the novel or Doom Doom the graphic novel. That might work because, again, graphic novels you know, can get away with superficiality because what they tend to be about more is impact. Um, now, didn't they want to make a video game based on your book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is the thing. Yeah, I'm embedded here, aren't I? Um, <laughs> I get no objection to someone trying to make a, a Kovach video game. I don't know how that would work. I mean, it's potentially interesting. And I'd like to think that it would come out something like The Suffering in that it would be a subtle and multi-textured kind of game that would make you think as well as as well as feel. I somehow think that that's not what would the, the end product would be. I suspect the end product probably wouldn't be that great. Uh, but in the end, if people want to try, fine. It's not, you know, I'm, the, the books are out there. The fact they get made into a film or a video game doesn't doesn't affect the book uh you know it's it's all the same to me so i i don't i'm not against this cross fertilization this this kind of uh cross media um pollination of 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 a concept but i do think it's driven very much obviously it's driven largely by the by interest in making money rather than i think i don't i think it's rare that anyone would prob would pick up a a video game and say i would just dearly love to to write a novel based around this you know i somehow think that 
the guys who write this stuff, um, they're writers for hire and they're doing it because they're getting paid and the guys who are paying them are doing it because they can actually, they think they'll shift a million units of this, you know. And that cynicism, the fact that that cynicism is pretty strongly at the base of it, I think in the end is going to mitigate against any kind of quality emerging. It doesn't mean that quality won't emerge or can't emerge, but it, it, it kind of mitigates against it. So... I, you know, yeah, fine. Let's let's see that happen. Why not? You know, let 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 let's go for it. Let's see this 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 sort of opening of the uh, of the media. But I don't have high hopes of what the end product will be. Let's put it that way. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about researching for science fiction. Mm. Um, it's a pretty interesting process, and I'd like you to tell us a little bit how you go back and forth between looking for raw material, material to help generate story ideas, and then once you've got story ideas, how you go out and research them. And uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your new novel, which has involved some research, I believe. Yeah, the new novel actually involved quite a lot of research, a lot more than I than I realized at the time when I started writing it. And I might not have started it if I'd realized quite how much I'd need to do. Uh, I'm not a great researcher. I'm, I'm quite lazy when it comes to research. I don't really like it. Uh, but you do have to do a certain amount in order to to sort of maintain the willing suspension of disbelief. You've got to, you've got to make the thing fly. I tend to be also quite an impulsive writer in that I'll sit down and I'll produce a couple of chapters on spec, just inspired by a place I've been or something I've I've seen or just some idea or whatever. Once I've got a certain amount of of material in front of me, I can then start to shape a plot from that and sort of push it in a direction. And yes, that will necessitate often going out and doing a little bit of research. Now, in the case of the Kovach books, there's not a huge amount of research that I need to do because they're set a long way in the future. I can pretty much make up the technology that I want. Uh, I need you know, need to check a few small things. Uh, it's like reading the Chem Nun novel, for example, just to get a flavour of, of, of the kind of the surf world so that the, when I try, injected that into my novel, it would have a certain amount of authenticity to it. Uh, the one I'm writing now, Black Man, uh, is only set 100 years from now and involves genetics and I have had to do an awful lot of reading initially just to kind of get my head around the ideas of, of what genetic engineering will and will and won't be able to achieve in, in you know in, in the decades and centuries to come but then also uh, kind of having having set the thing up and set it rolling then having to check things as mundane really as you know a street map of New York City because I get characters in New York and I need really to know how long will it take this guy to walk from 118th Street to the bottom of Central Park, for example? Things like that. Um, so, yeah, the the the, um, the closer you are to a contemporary novel, the more research, obviously, you, you, you're needing to do on, on small things like that. Uh, that's why it's, the book I'm writing at the moment is relatively slow. Uh, for me, science fiction has always been about the freedom that it gives you, the license that it gives you. Uh, and in this, this is probably as as close to the wind as I've steered for a while, uh, and therefore I, I, I've needed to do more research. And it's kind of reminded me why I enjoyed writing further future stuff. Tell us a little bit about the premise of this novel. Okay, yeah, Black Man is really uh, it's uh, the underlying theme of it, and the reason it's called Black Man is because it's really about our, f- our the kind of the fears that society has, the demonization that that we go through to kind of find a focus for our for our nameless fears. Um, and you know, black in this case is it, there's a harking back to the whole sort of racist thing of of, of seeing black men as this terrifying force. They're going to come and steal your women from your people. Uh, but also, black as in the sense of black darkness. The, the the you know, it's a color that's associated with evil. You look at Tolkien; it's there all over the place. You know, the Black Riders. You know, um, the Black Tower. 
so the, yeah, the and what the, the the real thrust of it is to basically say, well, you know, you can probably eliminate racism over time in civilized societies, people, but something else will take its place. People got to have something to hate. They got to have something to be afraid of, uh, and they'll just go looking for that other thing. So the, the central character is or he is actually black. He's he's Afro Caribbean of descent, but that really isn't the issue for him because he comes from a society in which that's largely been dealt with this is an integrated fairly integrated society and and you know what color your skin is is really neither here nor there a few trace elements of, of prejudice maybe but it's pretty much gone uh his problem is that he is also uh, p- uh part of a group of of uh genetically enhanced humans uh, called 13s and they've been enhanced basically to uh to be extremely violent and and tough uh and they they're part of a, a a very misconceived attempt by the military powers in in the United States, in Britain, in France, places like this, to create a kind of super soldier. Uh, That's to say uh, a soldier that will have uh, the kind of savagery that we would associate with our very, very distant ancestors uh, from like 100,000 years ago when we were still all nomads scrubbing around in the dirt. Uh, The idea is also that although this is the theory... When all is said and done, you look at this character and he's, he himself isn't able to say how much of it is because of this genetic uh, uh, machination that, that, that has been uh, done to him and how much of it is simply because he's been trained to be a very successful and violent soldier. Uh, because, again, this is always the question, the interface between nature and nurture, um, how much is dictated by genes, how much is dictated by how we condition a human being as, as they grow up. Uh, and... In the midst of this, you have a, a plot which is pretty much a, a kind of a, a countrywide manhunt and a sort of and a political intrigue thriller at the same time. But the underlying issues are, yes, you know, uh, what do we hate? Why do we hate it? What is it that terrifies us? Uh, uh, you know, and especially what, what is it that terrifies us about male power? And are we perhaps right to be afraid of male power? Is it, in fact, the maleness, genetic maleness that actually causes most of our social problems? And in, if that's the case, what can you do about it? That's that's a rough idea. I can't really tell you more because I'm still working on it and I don't know much more than that. We've been speaking with Richard Morgan. His new novel is Woke and Furies. Thank you for talking to us, Richard. Uh, my pleasure. Always a pleasure, Rick. <laughs>